you turn with me in God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we continue our study in the so-called doctrines of grace, or sometimes the five points of Calvinism, as they're summarized in the canons of Dort. It's not really, by the way, the five points of Calvinism, it's really the responses to the five points of the Arminians, Calvinism, which is a nickname for Reformed theology, wants to be submissive to the whole Bible, and therefore there's not five points, but 5,000 points. But the Arminians in the early 1600s had taken aim against the doctrine of election, and so the Synod of Dort was called to deal with that, and they responded to the Arminian document of five points with the biblical five points. And yet it's not the doctrine of Calvin or the doctrine of the Reformed or the doctrine of Dort, but it's the doctrine of Scripture. It's God's truth. And so this morning we are looking at a teaching sometimes called limited atonement or particular redemption. And we want to read 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 9 to the end of the chapter as we give our attention to the very word of the true and living God. 2 Corinthians 5 at verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. We do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The end of God's beautiful word. Let's turn to the Forms and Prayers book. The smaller Forms and Prayers book to the Canons of Dort. invite you to turn to page 267, first of all. So we come to the second main point of doctrine. We actually began this last Sunday night. And the heading there is Christ's death and human redemption through it. 
It begins in Article 1 by saying that God's justice requires satisfaction. Article 2, that Christ made satisfaction to God's justice. And then Article 3 and 4 talk about the fact that Christ's death is not limited in the sense of being somehow insufficient or limited in strength or power. Christ's death is of infinite value. It's sufficient. Had it been the design to save every person in this world, and as old theologian used to say, Christ's death was sufficient to save save a thousand worlds. But moving on, Article 5 talks about the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. This doctrine does not lead us to limit the gospel proclamation. Article 6, unbelief is man's responsibility. Article 7, faith is God's gift. And then it comes to the main issue here in Article 8. And then Article 9, which I'd like to read now. Article 8, the saving effectiveness of Christ's death. We confess on the basis of God's word, for it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Article 9, this plan arising out of God's eternal love for his chosen ones from the beginning of the world to the present time has been powerfully carried out And will also be carried out in the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the chosen ones are gathered into one, all in their own time. And there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood. A church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises him as her Savior who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride. So the church confesses God's truth. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we come not to hear ourselves, but to hear you. Not seeking the word and wisdom of man, but the truth of God from on high. We want to bow to you as the sovereign Savior. And we pray you'll teach us who you are and what you've done in Christ. Oh Lord, give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People of God, I'd like to begin this morning with a, a bit of an illustration. Boys and girls, I like to talk about firemen for a moment. You've all seen firemen, maybe even fire trucks on the road with their lights on. But imagine two different scenarios. Imagine in the first scenario, the firemen in the fire station, they get the, the call, the alarm, and so they drive off in the fire truck, and they arrive at a four-story apartment building. And as they arrive, they're told there's a young man trapped on the fourth floor, there's a young man still up there who hasn't come out. So they put up the ladder on their ladder truck and they climb the ladder and they break through his window and they discover he's passed out on the floor. And so they pick him up, 
They carry him out the window and down the ladder, and when they get him to the ground, they, pers- they perform these, these life-saving measures, and they resuscitate him, and he breathes again, and he lives. And the firemen, they're praised. The newspaper headline reads, Brave firemen save young man. But contrast that with a different scenario. Imagine, boys and girls, I don't think there's any firemen really like this, but imagine if there were firemen who got the alarm and who drove off in their fire truck and came to the apartment building. It was on fire, and they were told there's a young man on the fourth floor who hasn't come out, and they put their ladder up to his window. And then they got on their loudspeaker and began to announce that the fire department has arrived. There's a ladder up to your window. You need to come out. And then they did nothing else. And people began to say, aren't you going to climb the ladder and go get him? And they say, no, no, we don't do that. We just put up the ladder. And then someone else says, well, well, what if he's unconscious and can't come out? Or what if he's afraid of heights and doesn't dare to climb out that window? And they respond, well, that's, that's very interesting. But you see, we are not commissioned to break anyone's window. And it wouldn't be right of us to to intrude upon someone else's space. No, we are commissioned to make rescue available for everyone we go to. And this is what we do. We put up the ladder and we let people know that the ladder is available for them to come. Now, if you had your choice between two fire departments, and the second one was cheaper, even if you were Dutch, you probably wouldn't buy it. Unless you are convinced that you would never come to a point in your life when you were helpless, but you would always have sufficient power to get yourself out a window. Boys and girls, what kind of a savior is Jesus? Is he more like the first kind of fireman or the second kind? What kind of a savior has God provided to his church? I remember in high school learning these these so-called five points of Calvinism. And talking to my father about them, becoming convinced of them biblically and so forth. But I remember thinking, when it came to this doctrine we sometimes call limited atonement, that when I became convinced of it and saw what it meant, I thought to myself, if I go to school tomorrow, if I go to my Christian high school and and tell certain people that I believe Jesus Christ did not die for every single person, but, but only for the elect, that many people would be astonished. And I would be greeted with looks of horror and disgust. Because it seemed to me, at least, that in many people's minds at the school I attended, the fact that, or the the notion that Jesus died for every single person in the world was in their minds the very essence of the gospel. But what I came to realize in the years to come is that the question for whom did Jesus die is not really the question. The question for whom did Christ die, for how many did he die for, that's not the first question. That's the result of a more fundamental question. And that fundamental question is this, what was Jesus doing on the cross? What was Jesus doing on the cross? Did Jesus go to the cross without any specific plan to save anyone, but just to make salvation available for anyone in the hopes that someone might make use of what he did? 
Or did Jesus Christ go to the cross to save completely and eternally the ones the Father had given him? And you see, that's the issue. That's the issue before us. It's not that Reformed believers want to argue about who Jesus died for or didn't die for, first of all, but that Reformed believers understand that if you say Jesus died for every single person, then you cannot say that Jesus actually saved anyone, unless you're a universalist and believe everyone's going to end up in heaven. The Bible actually is very clear, isn't it? What kind of a Savior did God send us? One who just makes salvation available? No. Matthew one twenty one. the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior. You shall call him Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the Savior of Scripture. Let's look at three questions this morning. First of all, what did the Son of God come to do? What did the Son of God come to do? And then for whom did he come? And then what are the implications? First of all, what did the Son of God come to do? What was he commissioned to do? Well, the work of the Son of God was actually determined long before the creation of the world. From eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit had agreed upon the work that would be done. And before God ever gave that first promise of Genesis 3.15, God had already determined that he would send his Son who would crush the serpent's head and deliver his people from death. God would have a church. It was not some open question to see how many by their free will would believe on God. God would have himself a church. He would have himself a redeemed people. Nothing was indefinite. Nothing was left up in the air dependent upon the will of mankind. Just think of Isaiah 53, that passage that perhaps more than any other Old Testament passage proclaims the substitutionary atonement of Jesus so as we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But who are the all? When you read on what that work of Christ entailed, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and, and by his stripes, by those lashes on his back, we are healed And then when you read at the end of Isaiah 53 that this suffering servant God would send would not come in some undefined hopes, but would come to achieve victory. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. When you read that, it's a glorious Savior that's being announced. He's coming and he will be victorious. He will have a people. He will see his children. He will have an offspring. He will justify many. There is nothing that's left up in the air. And when Christ came upon the earth, he he revealed himself in the words that he preached. He said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And and then he displayed that. He, he, He drove demons out of people and he raised people from the dead. Showing that he came to save, to succeed, 
And then the apostles, when they reflected upon the work of Jesus, they said things like this. Titus chapter 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived. We were serving lust, we were hateful, we were hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through our Lord, through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we were hateful and deceived and disobedient, he saved us by the Spirit of Christ. And then think of Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And was that a wooing love? Where Jesus Christ just came to display love to whatever people he might meet in the hopes that some might return love to him. But Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved specifically the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ did not come to the earth to find a woman who is already dressed in white and waiting for him. Christ died for an unlovely, unattractive, unlovable, that's us, that he by his saving blood might cleanse us and sanctify us to present us on the wedding day to himself as a bride fit for the glorious king. And finally, you think of that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that we read. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Boys and girls, I don't know if you know what the word reconciliation means. It's probably not a word you used this past week. I don't think it was a word I've used this past week. Reconciliation. But boys and girls, you know what it's about. It's, it's about becoming friends again. If, if you have a friend or a brother or sister and, 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 and you get into a bit of a, a fight, somebody does something mean to you, and now you don't want to play with each other, you don't want to talk to each other, you're, you're not reconciled, you're irreconciled. But then maybe one of you says, I'm sorry. That was wrong what I said or what I did. Will you forgive me? And the other one forgives. And now you come back together and you want to be together. The friendship is restored. That's reconciliation. And the Bible says that we were created to be God's friends. And then we did something horrible to God. Horrible. We sinned against God. We betrayed him. And that, that violated the friendship. And now God was angry with us and his, his judgment was against us. But the Bible says that God sent his own son, to take care of the problem. He took his son, in whom there was no sin, and he made him, in a sense, to be sin in our place so he could bear our curse so that we could be righteous before God. Jesus took away sin, and now our friendship with God is repaired. We are reconciled to God, reconciled to him. That's a glorious thing. 
But the question before us this morning is, did Jesus make us reconcilable or did Jesus by his death actually reconcile? Verse 18 says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. What we have to do is think about the biblical language. Does the language used to describe the work of Jesus speak of potentiality and possibility or of accomplishment and actuality? When 1 Timothy 1.15 says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, does that word have meaning any longer? If he only makes salvation available. I mean, even in that second scenario of the firemen, if they climbed up through the window and found a young man passed out and brought him out, and could not revive him. They would not be lauded in the newspaper the next day as fireman saves young man. It might be said, fireman try to save young man. But the very nature of the word to save means to save. Same thing with other words in the Bible. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Did Christ only make us redeemable or did he redeem us? Reconciliation, same thing. Or Hebrews 9 verse 12, that, that he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Christ obtained redemption. He brought his sacrifice into heaven. He intercedes on the basis of that sacrifice. He obtained redemption. This is why Article 8 of our Confession is entitled, The Saving Effectiveness of Christ's Death. And it, it says that it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation. Christ redeems. Christ reconciles. Christ rescues. Christ saves. And that includes even giving us the gift of faith and, and before that, the gift of a new heart. I mentioned last Sunday night that, that in the Arminian position, there's the separation between Christ's death on the cross and the application of that death to our lives. And so it's often perceived as Jesus did all this work, and here's the present, it's all wrapped up, this is what Jesus did, and now it's set before you, and now the question is, will you unwrap it? So Jesus did his part, and now it's on you. But that's, that's not how the Bible speaks. In the Bible... All the benefits of redemption are tied together. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit purchased for us. In Christ, we have a new heart. In Christ, we have perseverance all the way to heaven. You see, that's why I mentioned in Hebrews 9 that Christ obtained redemption and goes to heaven to intercede and save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's all part of the same thing. Christ's death on the cross, Christ's intercession for us, Christ giving us faith, Christ holding us in the faith until he comes, and they can't be separated. It's not just that Christ acquired forgiveness, but then it's upon us to see if we get it. But Christ acquired for us the faith that takes hold of the forgiveness. You see, if you don't 
understand it this way from the Bible, then you're left with a strange theology. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, put it like this, Many divines, by which he means ministers, many divines believe in an atonement made for everybody, but then their atonement is just this. They believe that Judas was atoned for as much as Peter. They believe that the damned in hell were as much an object of Jesus Christ's satisfaction as the saved in heaven. And though they do not say it in proper words, yet they must mean it, For it is a fair inference that in the case of multitudes, Christ died in vain. For he died for them all, they say, and yet so ineffectual was his dying for them, that though he died for them, they are damned afterwards. You see the issue? Did Christ actually die to save anyone? Or did he die to make salvation possible for all? And was it therefore possible that not a single person actually gets saved through Jesus. Herman Bovink points out what this does to the plan of God. In this view, God therefore had ordained his son to the death of the cross without a definite plan to save anyone without fail. Christ by his death secured no one's salvation with certainty. In the final analysis, the application of salvation depended totally on the free will of persons in that view. And so Bovink writes this remarkable sentence. The most significant part of the work of salvation, that which really effects salvation, is still left for us to do. Do you see it? That Christ does all this work. The Son of God comes down from heaven. He, he's... he's Bills his blood on the cross. He suffers the curse of hell. And then God leaves the most decisive thing in all of the world. Whether anybody gets saved, he leaves that to our free will. Is that the kind of salvation we find in the Bible? That everything depends on the end upon man? We find a mighty rescuer who breaks through windows, who pulls out dead bodies, who breathes life into them, who comes to deceitful and deceive sinners, who comes to those hardened in sin, depraved, and rescues them. When God redeems his people from Egypt, he doesn't just open a way and say, do you want to go out? He leads them out. The kind of salvation revealed in Scripture is not one that elevates free will to this level, that the whole of history hangs on the will of men. And whether there will ever be a church, whether God will have anyone with him in heaven on the last day, it all depends upon man? No. That's not what we read about in the Bible. We read about a sovereign Savior who will have for himself a church and in glorious love does everything to save us. What did the Son of God come to do? He came to save. He came to reconcile. He came to ransom. He came to rescue. He came as a Savior. Well, let's move on, and I'll be more brief with these two points. For whom did Christ come? We can ask that question, then, if we've seen what atonement really means. Then, for whom did Christ atone? Last Sunday night, we saw that the Son of God came to do the will of his Father. To save the ones the Father gave him, John 6, John 17, John 10. To lay down his life for the sheep, John 10. 
Ephesians 5, Christ came to give us life for the church. It's all rather specific. It's all rather specific, isn't it? If we don't want to say Judas and Pharaoh are part of the sheep, part of the church, the friends from Jesus laid down his life, well, then you see the implication. Now, the confusing thing sometimes here is that, is that, is that we read in the Bible the words all and the word world that Jesus died for all, propitiation not only for our sins but for the sins of the world. And, and so our friends are quick sometimes to point out those texts to us. What about John one twenty nine? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we by no means want to dismiss those texts. Glorious texts. But the question is, what do they mean? In the Gospel of John, world is often being used to remind us of the wickedness of humanity. John often uses the word world to describe the world in rebellion against God. John 3.16, God so loved the world... I don't think it's saying God's love is so big as to love so many people. But God so loved the world, it's saying God loved the very thing that repulsed him. The wicked, hostile, depraved world. Other times in the New Testament, when when the apostles use this universal language of all or world, they're often trying to remind the Jewish people that the Savior is not just for Jews, but he came for Gentiles. For Gentiles too. You see, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so the apostles are often trying to remind the Jews, convince the Jews, He's a Savior not just of the Jews, but for the world. He has a universal Salvation, not in the sense of saving every soul, but saving people from all lands. And also, there are texts that if we want to say all means every single human, well, then it really proves too much. You look, for instance, at 2 Corinthians 5. It's quite a passage proclaiming a a broad, expansive, universal kind of salvation, isn't it? That we read it in, in verse Verse 19, the word world, right? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And you read in, uh, I lost the verse now. You read also here that Jesus Christ, um, one moment here. Oh, he says, for the love of God compels us. I got it in my notes here. I can't find it in the text. Oh, there it is. Verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, and some might say, well, there it is. He died for all. But the next words are, then all died. If one died for all, then all died. What what does he mean? Well, Romans 6 tells us what he means. Dying with Christ means dying to sin, which is tied to coming to life in Christ. And if in verse 15 you say all means every single person, or verse 14, if all means every single person, then you have to say every single person died to sin in Jesus and therefore comes to life in Jesus. 
well, then you'd end up with a universal salvation. Everyone goes to heaven, no one goes to hell. And even the Arminians didn't want to believe that. So the point is this, every passage has to be considered in its context. Every use of world and all has to be looked at in the context and asked, what is it saying? What does it mean? The language of limited atonement is maybe not the best language because it sounds like we're limiting Christ's death and it wasn't good enough or strong enough or big enough. But the reality is, is that everybody has to limit Christ's death in one way or another, or you end up with universal atonement. Everybody goes to heaven. A universal salvation, rather. Lorraine Bettner, in his book on predestination, uses the illustration of a bridge. It says the Arminians want to believe Christ died for every single person, so it's a very wide bridge. But it only goes halfway across the river. It doesn't actually save anyone. The Reformed have understood the bridge more narrowly. It's all the elect. But the bridge goes all the way across the river. If you want an extensive atonement, Christ died for everyone, then you have to limit the effectiveness of the atonement. What did it really accomplish? Well, it only went this far. And you see, that's why the Reformed are not so interested in arguing about numbers or whom Jesus died for. But we are compelled by Scripture to believe that Christ went all the way, not to do part of salvation or to make it available or to potentially save, but that Christ saves sinners from beginning to end. He brings them from death to life, from hell to heaven. Christ came to execute the Father's good plan. Finally this morning, then, how should we respond? What are the implications of this? Well, two implications. Number one, proclaim him. Number two, praise him. Number one, proclaim him. Some immediately think that if we can't say to every single person in the world, Jesus died for you, then we can't preach the gospel to all people. The most simple response would be, show us where in the Bible the apostles ever went up to every single person and said, Jesus died for you. That's not how they preached the gospel. What they did was they proclaimed to sinners their sin, and then they proclaimed the Savior God sent into the world, the glorious Savior, and then they said, believe on him and you'll be saved. Jesus assures us that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 6, 37. And John 6, verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so we say that to people. Believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. He turns away no one who believes on him. He turns away no sinner who comes to him. And every sinner who comes to him will know, Jesus died for me. The Apostle Paul teaches this particular atonement, powerful atonement, does not impede his call to the gospel. He says that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Receive this glorious offer. It makes us zealous. You see, it's actually not a belief in particular atonement that makes you lose zeal for evangelism. It should be the very opposite, that, that if we have this glorious Redeemer to proclaim, 
who doesn't do his part so you can do your part, but who comes to save with glorious power, extraordinary love. It should compel us to want to announce his name to everyone. He is at the answer for everyone's problem. Everyone. So the apostle will go on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to say, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the time urgently to announce the name of Jesus. His name is Savior. In his shorter catechism book illustrated, John Whitecross tells of a story of an uh, eminent Scottish minister from years gone by, Pastor Guthrie, who one evening when traveling home very late, he lost his way, was completely lost, and so finally he, just, he laid the reins of, of his horse upon the horse's neck, and he just surrendered himself to God's providence, wherever the horse would take him. And so the horse took him through ditches and over fields and finally delivered him to a farmhouse. And the pastor, in the middle of the night, went to the door of the house and asked if he could sit by the fire till morning. And he was let in, only to discover that but the mistress of the house, the woman of the house, was lying in bed, dying. And the priest was there. The priest was there, administering extreme unction or anointing with oil. And this minister watched that. And the minister, the priest rather, had, had finished his work and left the room. This gospel minister went up to the woman and said, Did what the priest say and what he did Does that give you comfort as you approach death? She said, no, it didn't. So then he told her about the atoning blood of Christ the Redeemer. Not a gospel of Christ as his part and you do your part, but about a reconciling Christ, a redeeming Christ. And she, White Cross writes, the Lord taught her to understand and enabled her to believe the message of mercy, and then she died that night triumphing in Jesus Christ, her Savior. The minister went home to his wife and said, I saw something extraordinary last night. He said, I came to a farmhouse where I found a woman in a state of nature, unbelief. I saw her in a state of grace, she believed, and I left her in a state of glory. Isn't that remarkable? To a farmhouse where a woman is dying in her sins. He brings the message of Christ the Redeemer. And she believes. And then she departs, entering in glory with that great peace. Do we want to proclaim to a world Christ who makes salvation a possibility? No, we must proclaim to the world the Jesus they need, a Savior who saves. Glory be to him. And this is what the world still needs, and this is what you and I need. And if this morning you have not been reconciled to God and you are not a friend of God, the gospel summons of 2 Corinthians 5 is clear. Be reconciled. Confess your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus. And come to know God as friend rather than foe. And if you've believed, but this morning you sinned again, As we all have, the gospel comes again. Be reconciled to God. Put your hope in the blood of the Redeemer. God didn't send you half a Savior, but one who takes away all your sin. So proclaim him. Second implication, praise him. Praise him. 
Our proclamation of the gospel is tied to our worship, isn't it? And when our worship falls short of giving Jesus all the glory he deserves, then our evangelism falls short of pointing people to Christ. And wouldn't our evangelistic zeal grow if we worship better? Are you weary? Then praise him. Are you at the end of your rope? Then worship him. Are you feeling too weak? Then reflect upon who he is and give him the glory. Find your help, your strength, your security in Christ. Recognize that we are the young man who was unconscious, lying on the floor. And it's Christ who carried us out and breathed life into our helpless depraved souls. God didn't leave us to ourselves. Christ didn't come and discover that there was no woman worthy of him and return to heaven and say, ah, they're all dirty and ugly. But he came to beautify us. He came to cleanse us. He wouldn't give up on us. And so you see, Ephesians 5 is a glorious text. And it's taken up, isn't it, in these last two articles of our confession. That he should finally present to them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. And so God will forever have a church founded on that blood of Jesus that will praise him as her Savior who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride. Maybe some of you husbands... Bought a card for your wife on Valentine's Day. Many this past week perhaps proclaimed their loved, their love for their fiance or wife. But you know, there's there's no bride who's more loved than the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no bride who's more loved. What a glorious glorious husband the church has that would not let her go but came to save her completely. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for such a savior. We confess, O Lord, we are so dim to the glories of all that our Christ has done. We pray that you would open our eyes by your word. How we praise you that you've reconciled us to you by the blood of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you've purchased for us in Christ all the graces that you have given to us the gift of faith to believe. Father in heaven, we pray that you will help your church as she wrestles to understand your word. We pray that we might help one another in the congregation and across even denominational lines. Be a blessing to our study of Scripture, that Christ may have all the glory and praise he deserves, and that the hearts of your people might be truly comforted in a God who did not leave world history to hang upon the will of man. O glorious God, be magnified. What an awesome plan you have concocted. What a glorious scheme your will has instituted, that you would save from the mass of sinful, rebellious people, a bride for the Lord Jesus. We give you praise in his name. Amen.